Would you all remain standing for the reading of this morning's text from the Gospel of Mark? Chapter 14, verses 26 through 52, and then verse 66 through 72. I'm only going to get us started by reading verses 26 through 42. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. Son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. When I was 22, my brother was ordained in the Anglican Church. If you're not familiar with the Anglican Church, they're not that different from our tradition of Protestant Christianity. But one, one difference is that their clergy almost always wear more formal vestments. And one of which is a stole. If you're familiar with the stole, it's this uh, kind of cloth that goes around one shoulder and over, over the other. And it's, uh, it's given at the time of ordination. So I had never been to an Anglican church before. And um, when I went, <laughs> the service had already begun when I arrived. And my brother gave me the stole. He handed it to me, the thing that was going to be put over his shoulders upon ordination. And the music was already playing, and I didn't completely hear what he said. And it turned out that the tradition of this church was a member of the family gives it to the, the bishop, actually, to place over the shoulders of the ordinance. So, like, the family's involved in the ceremony. But I didn't hear any of that. So uh, when it came time, I got, like, a call from the back, and I put it over my own shoulders. <laughs> and in front of a very full church, I walked right down the center aisle to the front, and my brother and, and the bishops didn't know what was happening, but they looked, and both of them were like, like their eyes got really wide, like this can't be happening, this just doesn't happen. Um, and then um, 
you know, my, my brother very calmly kind of took it off my shoulders and gave it to the, to the bishop. And when I realized, like, just how stupid it looked, it's just one of those moments that still, 18 years later, just sets me into, like, grinding my teeth and cursing under my breath because I just have this picture of myself in this most foolish of moments. And after the service, my brother came up to me and gave me a big hug, and he said, nobody cares, which wasn't really true. <laughs> but it, it reminded me um, this, this past week in a very, very, um, I wasn't here last Sunday. It was like a, a really weird, uh, but like deeply meaningful moment. I got away uh, with my brother and my sister, and um, we went to a conference. And um, one of the speakers quoted a Christian psychologist that died last year named Larry Crabb. And the, the main point of one of his talks was um, there is nothing more transformative than looking bad in the presence of love. There's nothing more transformative than looking bad in the presence of love. In other words, like, Everyone in that room could say, that's a bad look for you, John, 22-year-old John. But to love it, it didn't alter the relationship in the least. And it wasn't said, it was shown. It was felt, it was experienced. This is a passage where the disciples of Jesus, you know, we, we've been in the Gospel of Mark um, with a few breaks for well over a year now, and we've been with these disciples since chapter one, and by far, this is the worst look for the disciples. For all of them, mainly for Peter. And there's not just one moment of looking bad. There's three that we're going to look at today. Three moments of looking really bad, as bad as you can look before Jesus. So, I'm going to walk you through three scenes, and we're not going to spend too much time in any one of them. We're going to look at three scenes of testing. I want you to think of them as battlefields, because they totally are fields of battle. They face one battle, they fail. They face the next, they fail. They face the next, they fail. And we'll see the look on Jesus' face in light of all three failures. Battlefield one, the garden. It's not called a garden here. The Apostle John calls it the garden. It's Gethsemane means olive press in Aramaic. It's right after the Last Supper. Jesus, after he tells them, in verses 26 through 31, you are all going to fall away. Every one of you will fall away. You will leave me and deny me. Jesus says, now that that's clear, let's all go pray. And he leads them to pray. And he tells them all to pray, but then he takes particularly Peter James and John, the three who went up the mountain. I know this is going back. This is August now. Last August, we looked at that scene in Mark 9 on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus in his full humanity and his full divinity. These three who know who Jesus is, what do they do when Jesus calls them to pray? In verse 33, we read, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. It's there on page 3 in your bulletin. Verse 33, he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
34, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Later on in verse 38, he finds him asleep. He says to them again, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation to what? To fall away. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's on the ground praying. He's so troubled and distressed that he can't remain standing, and yet the disciples, they go to sleep three times. I think this is a good moment to uh, revisit what exactly prayer is. In the Confession and Catechism of this church, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 178, what is prayer? Gives a definition of prayer. What is prayer? Here's the answer given. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, with the help of his spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. You might just say talking to God. They teased it out a little bit more for a memorable definition. Offering up your desires, name of Christ, by the spirit, confessing your sins and being thankful. And then just tell him what you need. It's a good definition, but it's, it's not full enough. Because in Mark 14, you have to, when you read Mark 14, add to that definition of prayer. Prayer is a battle. It's a battle. He's wrestling. He's wrestling through distress. He can't, there's a sense in which, I mean, he's the son of God, but he knows he can't even go through this wrestling match alone. So he keeps coming, why does he keep going back to them? Yes, to help them not fall into temptation, but to not be alone to get the support that Jesus Christ, the human being, also needs. It's a battle, prayer. And I wonder if knowing that prayer is a battle is actually a comfort to some of us. Because I think there's an idea when you, maybe you know somebody who you think is, you think is pretty good at prayer, as if it was something you could look at only and not see the heart. I think some of us think, man, some people are just good at it, but I'm just terrible at prayer. I wonder if it's a little bit of a comfort to know it is a battle. Like, it is a struggle for everyone at some point. And Jesus says, watch and pray, and he keeps coming back. Watch and pray. Think of, think of a soldier on a battlefield who has the job of keeping watch, like a watchman. There are three things at all times that the watchman in battle has to be watching, not just one thing. One, he's watching himself. I I can't fall asleep, because if I do, everybody else is asleep. It's my job. It's my name. It's like my one job, watchman. That's my name, watchman. Will I or will I not watch and not fall asleep? So you're you're trying to stay awake. Secondly, you're always watching for the enemy, right? Where is the enemy? What might the enemy do? There's a third thing you're watching for, mourning. When the sun dawns, you can get some rest. There's a day coming when the struggle will give way to to a full and final rest. And Jesus is saying, it's a battle. Stay awake. Will you you actually do some warm-ups to maybe help you do what you say you want to do. You say, tonight of all nights, I won't fall away. 
in this sprint of this long last night of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. That's a sprint. But then the whole marathon of the Christian life. You say you want to do that really well, you'll never fall away, and you'll never even deny me. But you won't even do a couple stretches. (laughs) That's the scene. Will you admit human beings? Will you actually join the human race and admit your need to be strengthened? Or will ego win? The ego, you know, that we all kind of experience. It says, I really am okay. I really am fine. I really am fine without you. And I really am fine without you because there's enough in me to steal myself against everything. False. They lost this battle. The battle with the flesh, the battle of watchfulness, the battle of prayer. How will Jesus respond to them? We'll get there. But there's another battlefield first. And this is Jesus' arrest. I didn't read this part yet, but it's there on page 3. It's verses 43 through 52. Battlefield number 2. Verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Again, John, the apostle John, gives us more information. It was Peter. Peter cut off a guy's ear at Jesus' arrest. Verse 48 Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Verse 49, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him. That's all the disciples. All the disciples left him and fled, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So the moment's upon them. Jesus is betrayed and being arrested. This is the will they or won't they fall away moment. And at first, at least one of them, maybe this was in all of their hearts, we don't know, at least one of them said, I'm going to fight. I am going to resist this event that I hate with everything at my disposal, including a sword. It cuts a guy's ear off and it does nothing. And then, when it's clear that that's not going to do anything, that the sword will ultimately accomplish nothing in that moment in the plan of God, they all immediately turn tail and flee. So they're willing to fight for Jesus. They're willing to flee when that doesn't work. But no one, no one will actually follow Jesus. And they all fall away. And ultimately, this is really there in the text. I mean, it's the flow of the end of this chapter. This second battlefield loss is the result of the first loss. The failure of watchfulness in prayer leads directly to the next scene where they can't possibly stand to identify with Jesus one moment longer, and they have to run. Oswald Chambers talks about the relationship between the internal battle and the external battle 
this way, and I think it directly applies to this text. Listen to these words from Oswald Chambers. He says, the battle is lost or won in the secret places before you leave the castle. The battle is won or lost before you leave the castle. Never first in the external world. The Spirit of God apprehends me, and I get alone with God and fight the battle out before him. Until this is done, I lose every time. The battle must be wrestled out before God. I must resolutely go through the hell of a renunciation before God. Nothing has any power over the man who has fought out the battle before God and won there and given him control. If I say, I'll just wait till I get into the circumstances, and then I'll put God to the test, I shall find I can't do it. I must get the things settled between myself and God in the secret places of my soul where no stranger intermeddles, and then I can go forth with the certainty that the battle is won, lose it there, and calamity and disaster and upset are as sure as God's decree. This is the second battle. All they've had to draw on is this picture of themselves as the ideal friends, this picture they have of themselves in their mind's eye of the, the, the buddies that'll never let you down. And that is not enough. That's never enough. The soul that clings to God is the one that stands. The one that clings to nothing but self is the one that falls every time. The external battle is the second one. And it failed because the first one, the first battle was lost. Third one. Third one. The denial. Let's read the final verses here. This is verse 66 through 72. It's page four of your bulletin. And as Peter below, was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear by his own life, which he wasn't able to give up a few moments ago, to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. There were some verses skipped here that we're going to read verse for verse next week of Jesus's, uh, the beginnings of Jesus's trial after he's arrested and taken out of the garden. In this scene, uh, we get Peter, who when everybody else fled, Peter kind of in the shadows sneaks up at a distance and ultimately arrives to wait and see what will happen to Jesus on the outskirts um, of uh, the, the, the dwelling of the high priest. And he's confronted about his association with Jesus. Mark doesn't say why Peter follows. Maybe he's still resolved to follow Jesus to prison, even to death, as he swore back in verse 31. But he follows. 
and it's another battle. It's like one last chance for Peter. What are you going to do tonight? This is really similar to the battle at the arrest. He runs away, but it's more total. I want to show you how this battle actually has a lot more at stake than the battle where they just fled in the garden from the soldiers. Look at what Peter denies. Three things, actually, he denies. First, in verse 68, Peter denies that he knows Jesus. I don't know or understand what you mean that I was with Jesus. No idea what you're talking about. Denies that he knows Jesus. Secondly, in verse 69, he denies that he's associated with Jesus' followers. So his community now, my master, my, my fellows, my, my community, verse 69. This man is one of them, the servant girl said, but he denied it. His Lord, his community, and then look at the third thing he denies. It's in verse 70. He denies his association with Jesus from the very beginning of the ministry in Galilee. And I suggest to you this is another layer. Verse 70. Certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean. Probably we could tell by his accent. He's a Galilean. It's like, no, never been to Galilee, never heard of it. Not a Galilean. I mean, he's talking about his own personal history that he's denying, right? Not from Galilee. Didn't spend decades there as a fisherman. No idea what you're talking about. His Lord, his community, his very self. He says none of it's true. Isn't that something? To be shaken that deeply. And what I want you to see is this third battlefield, the denial, not necessarily the failure to pray. Not just, not just the running from Jesus at a moment of weakness, but when you ultimately deny everything you know of him and everything you are, this is actually the ultimate battle that the enemy of our soul has in mind at all times. Let me say that again. The enemy of our soul, Satan himself, he's not really interested in just messing things up for you a little bit. He's not really just interested in making sure there's a few moments like me with that stupid sash around my neck in your mind's eye where you feel a little ashamed. You know, I should have stood up for Jesus a little bit more at that point. I'll do better next time. No. The goal of our enemy is that you will curse God and permanently turn from him. And that's what Peter does. It's not the end for him, only because Jesus comes after him hard at the end of John 21, John 20 and 21. He says, I don't know anything about him. I have nothing to do with his stupid religion, and I'm not even from where you say I'm from. This is what our enemy is after. That is the battle. Will you cling to God in any way, or will you renounce him utterly when the heat turns up. And he failed. So, what a downer of a sermon. How are you going to wrap this one up, John? Well, from the text itself. What do we do to avoid all of this? Or, more to the point, what do we do when we see this exact thing in our lives? I've utterly renounced him with my words and my behavior. As there often is I'll risk sounding like a broken record. I know I do this a lot. But it's there so often. There's a right answer, and there's a real answer. And this passage is no different. There's, how, how do I not curse God and turn away from him? There's a right answer, and then there's a real answer. And I'll give them both to you. What's the right answer? 
Here's the right answer. Pray without ceasing at all times so that you will never fall into temptation and you will always stand with Jesus and follow him no matter what, whatever happens instead of fighting or fleeing like the disciples. Good luck with that. That's the right answer, right? That's obedience. That's the life of Christ. He wrestles it out and he's faithful to the end. Good luck. Go be like, go be like Jesus. Sermon over. No. What's the real answer? The real answer is you will fall. And he will pick you up off the ground and dust you off and organize a reunion for you and him. And he will do this about 1,000 times until you barely begin to trust him enough to obey. Way back at the very beginning of the passage, it's an amazing phrase. Verse 27 and 28. Read with, me, read with me again if you didn't see it the first time. Jesus says, you will all fall away. It's like he's certain about it. He knew what was going to happen all the way to the denial from the beginning, right? That's what it says. You will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I won't go before some other people who never failed me before. What's Jesus saying? You're all going to fall away utterly, but then we're going to get back together. <laughs> then I'm going to be there. You're going to see me on the cross. You're going to find out the empty tomb, and I'm going to call you back to my mission. Because that's how he works. Richard Sibbs has a beautiful quote, an Anglican as it happens. There is... It's beautiful. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. What does that mean? There's a lot of sin in us. There's a lot of falling away yet to do in this room. <laughs> but as you fall away and you find out, wow, I, I can't, I really can look back. I can really look bad in the presence of love. I can really look bad and find God's love for me unshakable. And that itself is the transforming thing that will help you to stand. I fall away. He's still there? He's still meeting me in Galilee? I said I'm not even from there. <laughs> I denied everything about my home, my community, and him. And still there he is with his nail-pierced hands, risen, forgiving, and calling me back to his mission. Saying, I still love you like this. Do you want to try again? Grace is like that. And grace like that is the very thing that will help you not fall, but you got to taste it. Let's not be a community that has like this watch out, don't fall guillotine over people's necks. Because you, uh, you know what? It doesn't change anybody. What changes people is grace. Don't fall. Don't fall away. Don't be a bad disciple. Guillotine falls. That's it for the Christian. But that's not our faith. Our faith is, you fell. I love you. I'm not done with you. Learn of my love. And see if you want to cling to me in the garden. See if you want to cling to me more than you want to even save your own flesh. That's the path of Christian maturity. And it is the only path of Christian maturity. Will you be freed as you receive his grace to take hold of him? Because this grace doesn't stop. It keeps coming. 
It's good news, folks. It's what I think, anyway. There is nothing more transformative than looking bad in the presence of love. This is grace. It was there at the cross. It was there at the empty tomb. And it was there waiting for them in Galilee. And it's there waiting for you. And it's even here at this table. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.